the Arthropod. The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla. Welcome back to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I am but one of your hosts for the day, Jonathan Larson of the University of Kentucky. I'm another one of your hosts. I'm Jody Green from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And I'm the last host today, Michael Scavarla with Penn State University. Did you like that little Kentucky spin I put on the word Kentucky? I did. Thank you. Uh, welcome back to the show. We're excited. We've just gone through locomotion. We talked about how bugs move around with their cool legs and their cool wings. We hope you enjoyed that material. But today we have an episode inspired by some, I guess, online ramblings of one Dr. Michael Scavarla. And I'm going to let him kind of explain what led to today's episode and kind of what we're talking about. Online ramblings. Yeah, That's... like, uh, no, like uh, when you ramble, when you walk around and, and go and see. Oh, you know, oh okay. okay. I was thinking of you as an almond brother for entomology. Okay, I, li- I, can... I like I like your rambling. So carry on, carry on with okay. your rambling, Mike Sprella. That that feels better. Yeah. So I had just gone down to a, a town about an hour away and gotten a my Lyme vaccine. I signed up for a Lyme vaccine trial. It's experimental, given given me all those good experimental drugs. <laughs> um, and I stopped for lunch. And decided to try listening to a new podcast while I ate my Taco Bell. And I decided to try listening to a podcast called This Week in Virology. I don't know a lot about virology or viruses, but you know, it's a sciencey podcast. It seems like something that would be up my alley. And one of the when I listened to it most recent episodes at that time uh was an episode on West Nile virus. Or at least the title, it was uh, Death on the West Nile. And I thought, okay. And it turns out that the part on West Nile was only about 20 minutes, like in the middle of this hour and a half podcast. The rest of it was good too. Uh, And this is episode 1031 on TWIV, This Week in Virology. In that part of the podcast, they discussed a new paper that had come out just this year, called Autoantibodies Neutralizing Type 1 IFNs Underlie West Nile Virus Encephalitis in 40% of Patients by Gervais et al. published in the Journal of Experimental Medicine. The podcast discussion starts at about the 45-minute mark if you want to go listen to that podcast. Uh, we're going to cover just about everything that they covered there today here, but if you want to you know, hear kind of what kicked all of this off, that's where I got it. If you want to hear um, some medical doctors talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. And they discussed the paper and we'll get into the paper a little bit uh, because I think it's really interesting and we're going to kind of cap the show off today with that. But before we do, I kind of wanted to start with a background about West Nile. It's like, I know it's a mosquito vector pathogen. It was big in the early 2000s when I was in high school, but like I wasn't at an age where I was paying attention to this kind of thing. So like West Nile is out there. 
It's a name I recognize. And that's about it. So what is West Nile virus? Uh, West Nile virus is a flava virus. It's a positive strand RNA virus. So it's a virus made of RNA and not DNA, the messenger molecule. Other flava viruses that listeners might be familiar with include Zika virus, dengue virus, yellow fever virus, and Powassan virus. Uh, we've talked about some of them at length. There's an entire episode about yellow fever that I did with Napoleon. Uh, we've talked about Powassan in relation to ticks a little bit. And they're all vectored by arthropods. Poor bugs. Yeah, poor bugs. <laughs> Uh, and so something I didn't realize before I dove into the research for this episode is that is true of most flaviviruses, but not all of them. So there's two major groups of flaviviruses. Uh, one, which is actually a couple unrelated groups, have no known vector. So two of these are associated with bats and another group is associated with rodents. And as far as we can tell, we we don't know how these groups of flaviviruses are transmitting in bats and rodents. It might be that there is an arthropod vector out there and we haven't found it yet. It might be that they're just transmitted bat to bat, rodent to rodent. I think that's kind of neat when the rest of this group, the majority of this group is arthropod vectored. Um, so there's still you know, something mysterious out there. And then as far as the arthropod vectored side of flaviviruses go, one section of them are mosquito-associated viruses. Um, so we've got flaviviruses uh, being vectored by mosquitoes, and there's two lineages within the mosquito-associated flaviviruses. One lineage are neurotropic viruses. So these are viruses that can invade the central nervous system. They're often associated with encephalitic disease in humans and livestock, so they're causing encephalitis, meningitis, issues with your brain and central nervous system. And they are primarily vectored by Culex mosquitoes. So Culex is a genus of mosquitoes. They're found worldwide. We've got a bunch of species here in North America. West Nile is one of these neurotropic uh, mosquito vectored flaviviruses. St. Louis encephalitis is another one of them. Uh, St. Louis encephalitis is found in the United States, primarily Eastern and Central US. So all three of us live in areas where St. Louis encephalitis virus is found. There's been some recent outbreaks in the Southwest as well, but it's not a very common virus. So only one to 32 cases a year, every year from 2003 through 2020, but it can have fatality rates of up to 30%. So if you get St. Louis encephalitis, it can be pretty nasty, even if it's fairly rare. The other lineage of mosquito-associated flaviviruses are non neurotrophic viruses. So these are associated typically with human hemorrhagic diseases. Uh, and these are interestingly vectored by 80s mosquitoes. So things like Zika and dengue and yellow fever. Uh, these are all 80s vectors. And I bring all of this up because I just think it's neat. Like you've got one group of viruses that are vectored by Culex. They're doing things in your central nervous system. The other group vectored by 80s are doing hemorrhagic diseases. And it's weird and interesting that you get this not only host switch, but then associated like disease, what kind of diseases they cause switch. And that's weird, I think. So you've got mosquito-associated flaviviruses. The other group are tick-associated flaviviruses. So there's one group that is found only in seabirds infected by ticks. I don't know much about them, but it's weird like they're just seabird viruses. 
the other group are the tick mammal viruses. So these are things like Powassan virus. This is a, a flavovirus that gets into mammals infected by ticks. Another one is tick-borne encephalitis that's found uh, in Western and Northern Europe through Northern and Eastern Asia. So if you take like a band across all of Eurasia, it's found pretty much all over there. And these viruses typically circulate among small mammals. We suspect Powassan virus, the host is shrews or something similar, but then they can infect humans via tick bites. So again, you get this weird thing where all of these viruses are getting in small mammals, but then if the tick that has it accidentally bites a human, we get some kind of weird flavovirus disease. So that's kind of the flavors of different flavoviruses and where West Nile fits into all of these. So West Nile is one of these neurotropic viruses vectored by Culex mosquitoes. We're going to talk in depth about some symptoms and what West Nile virus causes when it gets into people a little later in the show, but just for some upfront, if you're curious about what we're talking about when we talk about West Nile virus, it does cause flu-like symptoms, including fever and fatigue. Uh, it does get into the central nervous system in some cases and can cause encephalitis and meningitis. Uh, it does have a fatality rate when it does cause encephalitis and meningitis. But again, we're going to get into more detail about that, especially when we uh, start talking about this paper is the capstone to the episode today. So where did West Nile virus come from? There's a, a good review paper uh, by Sevier in 2003 titled West Nile Virus and Historical Overview. So if you want to get more detail about what I'm talking about here, that is a great paper to go look up. Uh, it is open access, I think. And if it's not, uh, ask me, email me, and I'll send you a copy. Wait a um, minute. Are you promoting piracy on our podcast? I am not promoting piracy. I'm saying I have a copy that I'm willing to share one-on-one <laughs> if people ask for it. Or we can include it in the show notes, perhaps. We could include a link in the show notes. Yep. Uh, maybe we'll do that. But it goes over sort of the global history of the disease? Yeah, or? it goes over okay. the global history up through 2003, which is right at okay. the beginning of, skipping ahead a little bit, the beginning of the outbreak in North America. Right. And so there's about 20 years of history from then till now that isn't covered. But if you kind of want like a history of everything up and until that point, it's really good. Can I hazard a guess as to where it came from? Yeah, actually, yeah. That's instead of me rambling through my outline. Yeah. Is it from it the west side of the, the Nile? Yes, kind of. Okay. Tell me more about what kind of I'm hitting on then. So it is from the West Nile district of Uganda. That's where it was first found. Ah. And the Nile River does flow through that district. It's a historic district. And I don't think it exists as it did back in 1937 when it was first found. But it's like the upper reaches of one of the branches. I think it's the Blue Nile and not the White Nile, but I'd have to double check. It's one of the branches that form the Nile River proper. So it's up in the higher reaches. It's not like Egypt, which is where we normally associate like the right. Nile. The Nile. Uh, um, but yeah, so it's the West Nile district of Uganda. 1937. So we're coming up on the 100th anniversary here in short order of West Nile virus. So it's only 100 years or 90 years old. Like, is that what we're saying? Or was Should there we, some inkling? Do you want to celebrate it, it in 10 years? I mean, I, I wanted to throw, throw a, party. a birthday party for Japanese Beetle when we celebrated the 100th anniversary in 2016 of the first confirmation, I think, of Japanese Beetle. So, yeah, I would be all about some West Nile virus cake or something. 
but <laughs> is it re- is it really only 90 years old or is there some inkling that it was around before then it wasn't confirmed until 1937 so i don't think we have any historic cases before 1937 that like gotcha. like with the napoleon stuff where we could point out and be like this is obviously yellow fever this is obviously typhus um so i don't think we have anything like that and part of it is that it was restricted to this area so West Nile was first found in 1937 during a larger epidemiological study looking for yellow fever virus. So they were looking for this other Flava virus. Okay. Yeah. That's known to be an issue, known to be an issue like in the Mediterranean, up into Europe sometimes. They're looking for that and they find this thing that's like yellow fever, but not quite. And they realize that they have this new virus that's never been seen before. Was this funded by a Bonaparte that was worried? I don't think so. I'm trying. Uh, I want to bring I want to bring Napoleon in for you. If you'd like to go back and listen to our Napoleon episode, I don't remember what episodes they are. They're in I'll the archives. We they are in the archives. Go check it out. Yep. In kind of suggesting that this was just a localized virus when it was found at the time, there was only sporadic cases. In, once we even knew what we were looking for, sporadic cases, local outbreaks, almost all of them in that part of Africa, kind of the north east part of africa into the middle east because it did start to spread a little bit or perhaps was kind of native to this larger region of the middle east northwest africa so sporadic cases local outbreaks in humans and horses it was recognized up through about the 1950s the first kind of major outbreak was in haifa israel in 1931 and this outbreak included 123 cases in just 303 residents. So it was a small town, but a third of the people that lived there got sick. And importantly, 123 cases, no fatalities at this point. Uh, And there were subsequent outbreaks in Israel in 1952 and 53. There were then seropositive samples that were collected from patients in Nigeria in 1951 and 55. Uh, Multiple kind of localized outbreaks in Egypt in 51 and 54. And work that was done, especially in Egypt at this time, really started to figure out what West Nile was. So we determined that it was vector-borne, almost certainly by mosquitoes, that it circulates amongst birds and can get into non-human mammals, and that it's endemic to this Nile Delta region in the northeast corner of Africa. In so part in of the, the reason, so in the on. 50s, we're nailing down the basics of what we're dealing yes. with here. Okay. Which is neat because, you know, before 1937, we didn't even know this thing existed. And so within 15 years or so, 20 years, we're really figuring out like what this virus is and what it does. And part of the reason that we know that it was endemic to this Nile Delta region is uh, seroprevalence. So looking at people's, whether they've made antibodies or not to this right. virus, uh, is up rates were up to 60% in some areas. So it looks like lots of people in the Nile Delta region had been exposed and had gotten West Nile at some point in their lives. That's fascinating. Yeah. Does that so, explain some of this early? Like people are getting it, but we're not seeing the fatalities that we got worried about, like when it got to North America eventually and Europe later. Maybe some of it, like okay. it, people were getting it as kids and like it, it kind of similar to yellow fever in African slaves that were brought over to Saint-Domingue during, again, hey, let's bring in uh, Napoleon again. Um, (laughs) You know, the African 
enslaved people that brought over, like they had yellow fever immunity because they were the ones that survived yellow fever as children. Like there is no innate immunity of yellow fever in African people. It's just that all the ones that were going to die picked it up as children and died and you get lifelong immunity if you get it once. So it might be like that was happening here. The kids that were going to die of West Nile died. And so seroprevalence was high because those are their survivors. Right. Um, I don't think that's entirely what's going on. Okay. Because again, if you look at the case in Israel, lots of people got sick and it hadn't been seen there before, may not have been native to Israel. People didn't get sick and die. They were typically getting what we think of as kind of low grade West Nile infections. They're getting fevers and that's about it. Other outbreaks were reported from Turkey and Iran in the 1970s. And again, all of these outbreaks in these other places, as kind of West Nile expands out of the Nile Delta region, involved a few hundred patients at most. They're not continent-wide outbreaks like we're going to see. And then there were sporadic cases worldwide, including Europe, up through the 1970s and 90s. Similar kind of thing. A few hundred people, some of them getting sick. Not many people dying, if any at all. Most patients have this mild self-limiting febrile illness, febrile being like fever forming. They're getting fevers, and that's about it. Some neurological symptoms were noted, but they were really rare, less than one in a thousand, so not common at all. And in 1974, to illustrate this, there was an outbreak in South Africa, so it had moved to the southern part of the continent by this point thousands of fever cases and only a single case of encephalitis so it looks like it's mostly a mild illness rare very very rarely is it getting into the central nervous system and then something changed i have not been able to figure out through my admittedly limited literature search if we've nailed down what this change was there are i think 10 lineages of west nile virus in the world So it may have been like a new lineage popped up, some mutation happened, but something happens in the 90s to the epidemiology. And there is a major outbreak in Romania for the first time. Uh, It's the first outbreak anywhere that's in a highly urbanized area. And most symptomatic cases, instead of being just a febrile illness, a fever, involve the central nervous system. So this is the first time it's like, oh, shoot, this is a bad central nervous system infecting virus. Milder febrile illnesses weren't even detected during this outbreak. And the author of that 2003 review does note that they may have been missed as, quote, surveillance was rather insensitive and may have been unable to detect such cases. So it may have just been that, like, they were there, people were getting mild fevers, and the the medical system at the time was not up to standard and didn't pick them up. Whatever happened, most cases that were noted were in the central nervous system. And it, at that point, had a 10% fatality rate. So you go from this thing that is not that big of a deal, thousands of people worldwide getting a mild illness with fever, something changes in the 90s, and all of a sudden, fatality jumps to 10%. There were then subsequent outbreaks in Europe and the Middle East, and following the same pattern, high rates of central nervous system infection more frequent, larger outbreaks, like something has changed in the virus where you go from small outbreaks, not many people infected to, oh shoot, it's everywhere, lots of outbreaks, central nervous system. On this front, I mean, you've mentioned the 10% fatality and, you know, these are things that we've talked a lot about in the last three years, right? 
surviving a viral infection mm-hmm. and then kind of what what happens on the other side i mean you're you're talking about central nervous system effects even if they survive if they're part of this 90 percent survivorship what does life look like on the other side of that infection is that part of what you read through so yes and no okay i didn't see any papers that tackled that specifically there was one review paper i I tried to get it through interlibrary loan, but it hasn't come in yet. That I think it was a meta study looking at like what happens after if you survive this illness, like what are the follow-ons? It seems like most people fully recover if they get a central nervous system infection, but they're from the abstract, it does seem like some people suffer from like then a chronic fatigue, you know, kind of stuff we'd be familiar with, like post-COVID long COVID stuff. It doesn't seem to be nearly as prevalent though, as like long COVID is after a COVID infection. So, but again, I'm, I'm waiting on the paper. So sure. uh, I just didn't make it in time for the, no, we got you on too, too soon. I apologize. I just found a, an EU pub. It's okay. It's uh, about West Nile virus infection outbreak in humans in Romania. It's from 2010. It goes over some of the history. I wonder if I, dug through here if it would say anything about post-infection effects it doesn't oh, seem a, like there's a lot of follow-up it's got a nice map showing where the hot spots were and oh cool bucharest and constanta i am not romanian i apologize but i i am interested in the fact that it was romania that got hit first geographically speaking i guess i mean it's kind of north of yeah turkey and not quite the Middle East, but like that, the like you can imagine is coming north, right? Yeah, no, it, it strikes me as very like Ottoman Empire meets Eastern Europe, kind of Dracul. We got blood sucking mosquitoes. <laughs> not trying to make light of it necessarily, but yeah, I can definitely see why it was first in this block. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, uh, is a sidebar. Hey, Jody, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Uh, not often at all. Maybe never. John, how about you? I answered this question yesterday. I am not I participating you in your survey again. Oh, well, then you've thought about it recently. <laughs> There's a, a viral TikTok thing, and it's it's so viral, it made a story in the New York Times about girlfriends asking their boyfriends or whatever, like, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And the answer is like daily or weekly, and women typically never think about it. And so it's funny that John brings up like the Ottomans meet, you know, Eastern Europe. So I thought Ottomans, Byzantine Empire, Roman Empire. There you go. There's my Roman Empire thought for the day. That's neither here nor there. I don't, maybe I'll cut this part out of the show. Okay. So we got this outbreak in Romania, other outbreaks in Europe and the Middle East. And so then the first case hits North America in 1999. It's found in August in 1999 in New York City. There's a cluster of eight severe cases of encephalitis in Queens, and seven of the eight developed acute flaccid paralysis. This is a central nervous system issue. You can get like local paralysis of arms. You can get total paralysis. It In ex- severe cases, it can paralyze your lungs and like you stop breathing. So you die without like a breathing machine. It's pretty nasty. It can be pretty nasty. 
All eight cases resided within the same 16 square mile area and did frequent outdoor activities. So like immediately there's this cluster of encephalitis cases, similar like region, geographic region. So it's immediately suspected to be an arbovirus. And arbovirus here is arthropod borne virus. Something I didn't realize until well into my entomology career is uh, arboviruses are not like a single taxonomic unit. It just means any virus that is transmitted by arthropods, they're all often unrelated. So it was su suspected to be some kind of arbovirus. And they started testing for the, the common North American viruses, including St. Louis encephalitis, which I mentioned earlier. And the patients had antibodies against St. Louis encephalitis, but not quite. And so they started digging more into this. At the same time, there was an epizootic outbreak of uh, some disease among birds, and it had a high fatality rate. And it's in and around New York, like birds in New York Zoo are dying, and nobody knows why. And so it took about a month to connect the dots between this bird outbreak and these human encephalitis cases. But within a month, PCR tests had determined that it's not St. Louis encephalitis that these people had. It's the first couple cases of West Nile virus in North America. And they connect the dots with the bird outbreak as well. Uh, by the, the end of summer of 1999, there were 62 West Nile patients found and identified, including 59 that had been hospitalized. So the one thing to note about these central nervous system infections most people that have febrile illnesses that have fever don't get hospitalized. Um, it's flu-like. You generally treat it in, as an outpatient if you go to, to the doctor at all. Rarely febrile illnesses are hospitalized. But if you get a central nervous system infection, if it gets into your central nervous system, a majority of those cases are hospitalized. So if you get this really nasty infection, you're probably going to the hospital. So again, by the end of 1999, 62 West Nile virus patients identified, almost all of them, 59 are hospitalized. There was a concurrent outbreak of West Nile virus occurring in Israel at that time. And later genetic testing showed that the US strain that showed up in New York and the Israel West Nile strain were related to each other, more so to each other than to other worldwide strains. And the closest relative of the US strain was found from a goose in Israel in 1998. Um, was it a so, Canadian goose? I don't think so. I think it was a domestic goose. Uh, um, so, lucky you, Jody. So somehow West Nile virus jumped from Israel to New York, whether it was like a person that was infected with an asymptomatic case that got bitten by a mosquito, a mosquito that was infected that came over in a plane somehow. We don't know but it makes sense that it would show up in New York City since it's a major kind of international port and harbor for boats and planes and people coming in. That does um, track. Yeah. The Israel outbreak in 98 and 99 was also associated with a high bird mortality. In that Israel outbreak and then the associated New York outbreak, these are the first times worldwide in the history of West Nile virus that there are these major bird epizootic outbreaks as well. We knew that West Nile circulated among birds, but it had never caused like a major bird die off. And so again, something seems to have changed in the mid to late 90s, starting with 
these major shifts towards central nervous system infection in Europe, and then all of a sudden it's doing that and killing birds at a at a large scale too. Can we talk um, a little bit about this resource that Jody just found? Jody, can you introduce what kinds of birds we're talking about here? Is it just American robins or kestrels or what does the CDC say in this thing that you posted here? So I do think about West Nile virus daily, but not the Roman Empire. I just found a list of the species of dead birds in which West Nile virus has been detected in the United States. And this was compiled from Arbonet. So there's the National Arbovirus Surveillance System. So this is where I go to get information because people are usually calling from all over the place and they just want to know what's going on. But this one is a whole list. Uh, it's got four pages and there are two columns on each. And so there are a lot of birds. So this says I mean, a penguin died. Yeah. It's it's very interesting because we always think about the corvids or the crows or the jays, right? The blue jays. But it's got lots like turkey vultures and zebra finch and spotted owls, rock wren. Like I don't even know. I'm not a birder, but there are lots. So I think, I mean, it just, there's so many variables with this disease and if it starts and gets spread by birds i mean mike it was in sharp shinned hawks oh so it's it's really interesting that you bring that up because i've got a section on birds coming up and we're going to talk about how how birds really affect this thing i jumped in i apologize it's okay it's okay and also it says like if they're native exotic captive or native captive so that's interesting as well a lot of the birds died in zoos, which makes sense that then, like, oh, shoot, these zoo birds are dying. We test them for West Nile as opposed to, like, a bird out in the woods dies and nobody finds it, right? If so, a bird dies in the woods and nobody's around to test it, did it is really it still dead? Nile? Yes. Yeah. It's, <laughs> well, who knows about that? But if you need to talk to someone who had West Nile virus who didn't have symptoms or partial symptoms like you know i just think the cases are so underreported because like why would you ever report it i would never have known and there's probably hundreds and thousands of people that have had west nile virus that will never know and like from what you were saying about encephalitis so once you get or have had west nile virus in your system you're are you immune to it then for the rest of your life I think so. Um, but we're going to get there. Can you okay. hold that thought for just a second? I'm going to ask you yes. about it. Oh, okay. okay. I'll start trying to remember and think. Okay. West Nile virus shows up in 1999 in New York. And from there, and this is kind of what I vaguely remember being, you know, a teenager coming into high school at this time. West Nile virus spread quickly and established across North America within three years. So in 2000, there was only 21 known cases of West Nile, all in the Northeast. 2001, there were 66 cases spread across 10 states east of the Mississippi. And then 2002, it explodes. There were over 4,000 cases of West Nile in the U.S. 2,300 of those were meningoencephalitis. So meningitis, encephalitis cases, central nervous system cases. 
There were 284 fatalities, and it was the largest outbreak of West Nile virus ever worldwide up to that point. It was also the largest arboviral meningoencephalitis outbreak in the Western Hemisphere that had ever happened up to that point. And yeah, like small, small, and then all of a sudden, 2002, it goes coast to coast. It is found in California. It is found on the East Coast. It is everywhere across the United States and Southern Canada. And what's crazy to me and kind of like, I remember people then freaking out about it. Like any mosquito bite you got is like, oh, is that West Nile? Are you going to die now? And people have kind of stopped talking about it in the last 20 years. That Like that's my sense. People aren't concerned about it. Yeah, I was actually, that was going to be one of my questions was like, what do you, do you two remember of this era when it was getting, getting around the way it was? Like I was in Indiana and I remember in one of the things I think you linked to that Indiana was listed as one of the states with the highest incidences in 2002 or three, like it was one of the hot spots. So it was talked about a lot. What about in Canada and Pennsylvania? Yeah, I remember people being worried about it worried about mosquito bites, doing a lot to try to prevent mosquito bites. But again, I was a dumb high schooler that wasn't really paying that much attention to things. Jody, did you hear about it at all in Canada? Okay, what year are we? Uh, early 2000s, like 2000, 2001, so, 2002. So I was already in Indiana. Oh, you were? Yeah. So, oh, okay. Uh, I mean, I'm a mosquito magnet. But I, and so it's more of like the annoyance that probably was something that I would think about. I don't think I was really too concerned with the illnesses. Okay. You know, not, not like I am now. So 2002, there's 4,100, just over 4,100 cases of West Nile across the U.S. that we catch. And most of those are because over half of them are central nervous system cases that are giving meningitis encephalitis and people are dying 200 fatalities or almost 300 fatalities and then we kind of memory hole it like we have done with covid so every year since 2002 there have been between 700 and 10,000 west nile cases reported every year it kind of spiked up and then never went away like we have just as many cases on average now as we did in 2002. And I don't hear anybody talk about it. Nobody cares, at least in my sphere, like about West Nile, about catching it, about dying the way that they did again, in my recollection back in 2002. So um, go back so, over those numbers a little bit. You talked about infection numbers, but did what was the fatality rate? Did you say? Yeah. So 2002, there were 4,100 no, cases. I mean, now, like, what are we talking about now? Yeah. So 2003 through present, I don't have fatalities in okay. my notes, but there's a median of 2,200 cases a year and there, a spread of 700 to almost 10,000. Right. Okay. Um, so you've got a pretty good range, but an average of about 2,200 cases. I've actually two, talked about this with a couple of people here in this department uh, that go outside and do a lot of field work because they were active back then when the the first outbreak was happening and they seem to have this sentiment that we've all been so exposed and the people that died then unfortunately passed away but like if you got bit then as Jody was kind of alluding to before and you make it through 
you you do have some immunity. So I've always wondered, or I've wondered since that conversation a few months ago, like, is that what you think has driven this memory hole, as you called it, of like, if people aren't dying at that high of a rate, like, that's usually when people stop caring about a disease, seemingly. Yeah, I wonder about that. Um, and like, it's an old story at this point, even if yeah, a lot of people true. are dying, like it's been here for 20 years. And the news just isn't interested in covering it. So like, it's not in front right. of people to think about Yeah, the way it is through. when it's like, it's here and it's killing people and we've right. never seen it before. I, I mean, at this point, we've cycled through Zika and everything else under the sun with mosquitoes. So yeah, definitely. I could see where people are like, well, I mean, West Nile virus, that's, that was a Y2K problem. Like, why are we talking about it now? Right. And and so to put it into perspective, last year or this year alone, and we're not even done with the mosquito season, uh, there have been 879 human cases reported. So we're at the lower end of like your yearly average, but 573 of those were neuroinvasive cases. So cases wow. that got into the central nervous system, encephalitis, meningitis, possibility of fatality. And yeah, it's only 500 people across the United States, but like it hasn't gone away. And it hasn't like it. We're at the same level as we were in 2002. So I, I, my take from all of this is it is amazing what people can get used to and put up with when it becomes like just the way things are. Right. And now at this point, like it's West Nile virus is worldwide. It is the most widespread arbor virus worldwide both in terms of geographic extent and in cases of numbers per year so yeah it exploded from this this virus that was basically contained to the nile river valley globalization globalization uh is this where you wanted to talk about our very own jody green's experience with this pathogen and talk of i mean she made it i thought an interesting point earlier about under reporting because you, you just listed a number here 800 some odd cases 500 some odd neuroinvasive in this in this country the 500 neuroinvasive ones make a lot of sense to me that they would end up in the hospital and they would be reported but jody did you report your incidents when you tested positive for west nile virus or or, no. or how does that yeah so it's so, an interesting story i don't know if is this my cue mike is, am i allowed yeah, is this, to can we, keep I did. we can we can jump ahead in the script and then i'll come back and hit the bird stuff okay. in a minute and um, if anyone wants like some of the data like the tables and in stuff like that uh, we can also put the link to the cdc it's got like the stats for the map and historic data so you can see the and compare each of the years um it goes from 1999 to 2022 and you just updated us on this current year but these are the kind of things that i i look at because a lot of times you don't know what to compare it to and so there's like the number of cases and they can break it down well for us it used to be in the nebraska department of health and human services it would break down the year, how many cases. And so the cases is are like what you're talking about, neuroinvasive, and then the non-neuroinvasive. So that's the febrile cases. And then they'll also say deaths. So how do you, like, if you've got a fever, I mean, not everyone's going to go to a doctor or, you know, anything if they have a fever. Sometimes we don't even know. You just know you don't feel very well, but you wouldn't think, oh, West Nile virus. Um, it's kind of the thing that, that people like me think about now, but um, how do you know that they, they have these cases? And I didn't know at the time, but I was a blood donor. 
So I would go to, I don't know, Red Cross and donate blood whenever I had a chance. And uh, one day I got a letter and I thought it was like a thank you or like a gift card. I was like, thought it was going to be something cool because I never get mail from like the American Red Cross. And it was like, we, you know, something to the fact that, uh, you know, you've been tested and you've come back positive for West Nile virus. And I was like, what? You got bad blood. I was like, yeah, I was very upset. Uh, I mean, my blood was rejected, right? I'm trying to do this thing. But then I'm also like, I'm an entomologist and uh, like, I should know about all these things. And it was, I mean, I do get mosquito bites, like who doesn't? So that year in Nebraska, so it was 2018. And when I looked and I was monitoring, that was like since 20, uh, 2003, when there was that big, those, those high cases, um, and at that time in 2003 in Nebraska, there was just a little under 2000 cases and 27 deaths. And then throughout the years, there wasn't ever that big of an outbreak. And then in 2018, the year that I was, you know, I, I wouldn't even say it was I diagnosed, like I was reported that I had West Nile virus, there were 242 cases and 11 deaths. And so it was a very high year for Nebraska. And that was the second most deaths of any state um, after Illinois. So that's kind of when I think um, Jonathan was still here. And so he was on the news, I believe, talking about mosquitoes. And that's when mosquito safety and dumping water, that became big news. Um, people wanted us to to talk about mosquitoes. But before that, it, you know, maybe not so much. And there was also a good friend of mine's dad who was in the hospital and they didn't know what it was for. And because I had just gone through that the year after, or he got it the same year I got it, but he had um, paralysis. They, it, it, all the symptoms that kind of sim- was similar to a stroke. Um, and he, I believe is still in a wheelchair. So it's the, you know, the cases that are reported and that are hospitalized, it goes from so severe to something like me where I was, um, I don't remember having a fever. I mean, they wouldn't have taken my blood if I had a high enough fever that I would have been rejected. But a few weeks before that, I did remember seeing a rash and I did go to a doctor um, because it was a very strange rash that I had on my legs. And I thought, funny I thought it was like uh straw itch mites or something like that like I was like there's got to be a reason why I have this rash it doesn't make any sense I went to the doctor but because I didn't have a fever she didn't it wasn't even in her mind to test me for West Nile so I mean I could have easily just never have known but then I would never get West Nile because I would be immune so that's why you know, I'm thinking like, what if all our kids who lived here were all bitten by West Nile mosquitoes because we had, I guess, high concentration of either infected, you know, high high virology in the mosquitoes or whatnot. And so hopefully maybe our kids are, you know, immune to West Nile virus here. But yeah, that's how they test. And we never know that they're testing for that. But if you can get West Nile virus from uh, like organ transplants or blood, it's good thing that they do test. So, 
Yeah, no, and that makes that fits in with um, exactly what happens with West Nile. So um, the incubation period after you get a mosquito bite is somewhere between three and 14 days. And so if you had a rash up to two weeks before, that could have like that could have been the first signs of West Nile. Um, and the current situation in North America, so not looking at those historic West Nile cases from the 50s through the 90s when the central nervous system issues weren't such a big deal. In North America, and I think worldwide today, 80% of patients are asymptomatic or have quasi-symptomatic, like almost no symptoms. So, you know, four out of five people get West Nile and they don't even know it. Your body just clears it out, makes antibodies, and you're good to go. Only 20% of patients develop fever, headache, rash, vomiting. Um, and this is what is called West Nile fever. So the, the disease that this is, this 20% is West Nile fever. And that's 20%. So that's one in five. That's, you know, that's a, you got a pretty good chance of getting getting that if you are bitten in, by a West Nile positive mosquito. Uh, less than 1% of patients develop the encephalitis or the meningitis or acute flaccid paralysis in some of these other central nervous system issues after it invades the central nervous system. This is often preceded by neck stiffness and confusion, possibly seizures. The problem is if you're that less than 1% of people that develop these central nervous system issues, it has about a 10% fatality rate. Um, and, it, and estimates range anywhere from 5 to 20%. But if you get this neuroinvasive infection, say 10%, you got a 1 in 10 chance of dying even if you get to the hospital. The WHO estimates that about 1 in 50, one in 150 people develop this severe disease. So, I mean, Jody, your story tracks exactly with this. You're that 4 in 5 patients that develop either asymptomatic or a mild rash or something mild that you don't even think is West Nile. So that makes complete sense that you would that you would miss it. You mentioned the that you it pick, got picked up while you were giving blood. We'll talk about the mosquito transmission route because that is the most important uh, vectors are the most important way that people get West Nile virus. But there are other transmission routes. So no, there's no human to human transmission known. Like you, if you have West Nile in like kiss your children or intimate with a partner, whatever. Like there's no transmission route known like that way, direct human to human contact, but it can be passed via blood and organs. So there have been lab workers that have been infected after needles, accidental needle sticks. Early on uh, in, you know, 2000, 1999, 2000, 2001, there were cases that were uh, picked up through contaminated donated blood. So all blood in the U.S. is now screened for West Nile virus, which is how they picked yours up. It can be transmitted mother to baby during birth. There's a really low risk of this, so it's not something that is common. And there's, there was a study that was done uh, looking at mothers that were West Nile positive and gave birth, and they found that there's no increase in infant mortality. So even if the baby picks it up, it's it's probably fine. Again, most people don't even get sick. so. Uh, that makes sense. And there were a few cases that were transmitted via donated organs. So again, we all blood in the US now, and I think blood in Europe as well, places where they test donated blood for pathogens are screened for West Nile. 
Because you think about it, like a person that is getting bloody, person that is getting an organ, they're already like hard up. They don't need another thing to stress their immune system out. So even if four and five people are asymptomatic, like they're the people that are already immunocompromised in some situation where we don't want them getting exposed to a virus. But again, we screen for West Nile in North America. So that's not the most important, like contaminated blood is not the most important route of transmission. Uh, The most important route of transmission is through vectors. So birds are, uh, we mentioned it before, but birds are the primary host of West Nile virus. It circulates naturally amongst birds. The list you sent out is, you know, pretty spot on. It's known to infect more than 250 bird species, probably can infect every bird out there. And just, we just haven't tested enough birds to, to find it. Interestingly, the ability of West Nile virus to infect birds varies by species. So some birds have a high viremia, so the number the number and amount of viruses in the blood, uh, and some have a low viremia. So some birds get it, they get a big infection, lots of viruses. If a mosquito bites that bird, there is a high chance that that mosquito is going to pick up West Nile. Other birds have a low viremia, so a mosquito bites that bird, it may not pick up West Nile from it. Um, and so bird species vary in their ability to get West Nile and then transmit it to mosquitoes. So some examples of birds that are highly susceptible to West Nile include things like corvids, so crows, ravens, jays, as well as rafters like hawks and eagles and owls. And when there are epizootic outbreaks of West Nile, they have a high mortality. Lots of crows and jays are dying uh, during these West Nile outbreaks. And so one of the signs of a the beginning of maybe a bad West Nile year is like a large bird die-off in these groups. The people monitor for these bird die-offs because they can let you know like, oh shoot, West Nile is ramping up. It could be bad. And I mentioned there are important differences in bird species in West Nile amplification and transmission uh, because they vary in susceptibility in viremia load and because mosquitoes have different preferences for different birds. Even if a mosquito is a bird specialist, if it only feeds on birds, they still have preferences. They might feed on bird species A, preferentially to bird species B. And so corvids, again, they have a high viremia. They produce a lot of virus in their blood, but they're not super important to the transmission cycle because they die so quickly. Mosquitoes often don't have a chance to feed on them before they just die. Conversely, American robins also have a high viremia. They don't typically die from an infection. And they're the preferred host for some of the most important vectors of West Nile in North America, or at least in the Northeast. So American robins, because high viremia don't die and they're their preferred mosquito host, they're actually really important to West Nile amplification and transmission. Before you move on, I just was kind of curious, you of all three of us are probably the most bird affiliated uh, (laughs) host of the show as a former falconer. Is this something you learned about or talked about there? Like our falcon owners, hawk owners is, are they concerned with West Nile? Yes. Okay. Um, So like, what does that look like? Do they have education on it or how do you protect your bird kind of thing? Yeah. It's just kind of known in the community. People worry about West Nile. The problem is there's not much to do besides it's a virus. So there's supportive care. If your bird gets sick, but it's one of those, like, it is a concern, but there's not much to do. Um, yeah, put deed on a on a falcon. 
Right. And so you do things like around your area to reduce the number of mosquitoes, like outside mosquito control. Um, like that is something that it is known that you should do. Another thing that we're having trouble with in Pennsylvania is grouse are susceptible. And so our rough grouse population has crashed since West Nile came in. Ruffed grouse are a popular game species. People hunt them. But like hunting has pretty much dried up on grouse because they're just not present in the landscape at the densities that they were because West Nile came in. Isn't that the state bird of Pennsylvania? It is our state bird. They are really cool and I love them. Uh, I've seen a couple out in the wild. You, I've I've been blessed to see them. They're really cool. You let people um, shoot your state bird in your state? Yeah, they're they're also delicious. <laughs> interesting, and, interesting. And when the population is high enough, like they can sustain some hunting pressure. It's just some eating. Yeah, it's just now with West Nile. I personally, I think we should probably stop hunting them in the state because the population can't support it anymore. So there are different mosquito species that are important in the amplification and transmission cycle. Uh, I'm going to focus on North America because that's what I'm most familiar with. But for example, Culicetta melinera is a mosquito species here in the Northeast. They're bird specialists. And because they're bird specialists that are feeding just on birds primarily, uh, they're really important in amplifying West Nile virus in the bird population. So you can imagine robins being one of the more important host species for West Nile. Like they migrate. They're not here in the winter. So they go away and then they come back and every year you've kind of got to re-amplify West Nile virus in the bird population to a point where mosquitoes are biting enough birds and then biting people that people get West Nile. So how do you amplify West Nile in the bird population? Well, you've got to have a bird specialist mosquito that is transmitting it between birds. And Culicetta melinera is that species. So it's really important in amplifying West Nile virus in bird populations in the early summer. They may be important for transmission of West Nile to mammalian hosts. So 90% of what they bite are birds, but they there are um, there was a study in 2006 that looked at blood meals in the guts of these mosquitoes, and 10% of them were mammals or mixed bird mammal blood meals. So it, they might be transmitting West Nile some to mammals and people. Uh, and one study, again, harping on American robins, found that 23% of the blood meals in this species, Culicetta melinera, were from American robins. So you've got this bird species that is high viremia, doesn't die, and is one of the most preferred bird host species of these mosquitoes that are important for amplifying West Nile. So it's like, the other thing about American robins is they're everywhere, like every yard you look at. Like we have made the environment that we live in perfect for American robins, which are the perfect host for West Nile virus. So it seems like this perfect storm of like, there's a reason that West Nile could invade North America so well. It's because we made the environment great for robins, which is great for the virus. I feel like there's an interesting kind of story there. I mentioned Culex mosquitoes earlier in the show. They are the primary vectors of West Nile from birds to people, but the importance varies by species. Um, so Culex restulans is a bird specialist similar to Culicetta. Um, it's important in the early season amplification of West Nile in birds. 
they occasionally bite humans, maybe about 5% of their blood meals are humans and other mammals. So they might be an important bridge vector from birds to mammals or birds to people. Uh, but really the big three are Culex pipians in the north, Culex quinquae fasciatus uh, in the south, and then Culex tarsalis in the west. And the thing about these species is they're all bird specialists early in the season, but then switch to mammals midway through the summer. So they're feeding on birds, getting West Nile, and then switching on to mammals later in the summer. And that is an important way that like, you've got to have mosquitoes that are biting birds, then biting people for the people to get the virus. And so these are the mosquitoes that are doing that because they're host switching. But it's complicated too. So one study in Chicago found that the presence, absence, in mosquito feeding on American robins is actually more important to West Nile cases in humans uh, than this seasonal transition from bird to mammal feeding in Culex. So the robins show up, how many there are, what mosquitoes are feeding on them is going to be more important than switching bird to mammal. Like it seems like American robins are just driving a lot of this. So again, I think that's that's kind of interesting and makes it really complicated and hard to think about. So that's how West Nile is kind of amplified, transmitted amongst birds, why birds are important, and then how it gets into people. Mammals are dead-end hosts. We don't get a high enough viremia load for mosquitoes to bite a human and then get West Nile from us. And lots of mammals test positive for West Nile. Things like deer, raccoons, cats, dogs, they have all tested positive for West Nile because these mosquitoes are just biting mammals. Uh, but it's only humans and horses that get like really sick after they get a West Nile infection. So again, I think that's kind of interesting. Like we've got this weird virology going on with different mammals, uh, even though we're dead end hosts. That's the part that's always fascinated me, and I was waiting for that phrase to pop up specifically in this uh, recording and conversation because I I also find that just so strange. Like, then why does it get in us? Like, <laughs> why aren't we better at defending ourselves if it's just going to get in and be at such a low titer or whatever word I'm misusing here that it can't even replicate inside of us enough to become a mosquito born again out of our blood? Like, it just seems like a cheat. I don't know. I don't like it. Yeah, and yeah. it can make you really, really sick or it doesn't affect you at all. Like it's, it is weird. It makes me curious too, it's like uh, us and horses, like that's a weird bridge, right? To have two high problematic situations, highly problematic situations, but be dead hindos. Uh, Mike, in your travels and your ramblings uh, through West Nile literature, was there ever any discussion about our, our relatives in, in the primates? Like, do they get West Nile? Are they dead end hosts? Are are they getting sick from it? They're going to be dead end hosts, but I did not see anything about whether other primates get sick from West Nile. And something I think is interesting that I haven't been able to find any information on. I'm sure there's research and I just missed it. Like American robins migrate, and these things are bringing West Nile up and down North right. America. Like there's monkeys in South America. In Central America, where robins are going to overwinter, and there's Culex species down there, like, are they transmitting West Nile to these other non-human primates? Like, what is going on with that? What What's happening in the tropics when they take West Nile down there? That's a good question. I'll, so this maybe is like a way wild idea, but like, is our songbird protection here 
a contributor to this. I know that like you can't go to Italy. We can't kill songbirds. Yeah, like you, I know you probably can't go to Italy and like start shooting up songbirds everywhere. But we do have a, a legacy of protection for these particular birds, robins included. I, I wonder, like, if that allowed for them to persist. It makes me wonder about if your, your beloved Carolina parakeet and passenger pigeons were around. What would that look like? Doves are known to get West Nile, and I think they're pretty good hosts for it. So, yeah, like, I wonder what passenger pigeon would have done if there's billions of birds. Probably huge die-offs. So it's good we ate them. We spared them the suffering. <laughs> it's terrible. So it does get into humans and horses is dead-end hosts. I don't really have a place to talk about horses, so let's talk about it here before we jump into people. There, I don't know much about West Nile and horses, except that it's got a 10-30% to 30% fatality rate in horses. One thing I haven't been able to find, and maybe again, maybe I just didn't look hard enough, is do horses follow like a similar 80% or asymptomatic 20% get a mild illness that the owners may not even detect. And then it's less than 1% that are getting like really bad encephalitis and dying. I haven't been able to figure that out, but of the cases that are noticed because they're so bad that they're getting, you know, these, these really bad central nervous system problems, about 10 to 30% of horses die. So it's kind of similar to human, uh, the human fatality rate. Jody just sent a link that there is a vaccination for horses, which is true. Uh, it's another one of these, like, there's a Lyme vaccine for dogs. There's a West Nile vaccine for horses. There's no West Nile vaccine for people and not yet a Lyme vaccine for people either. I imagine that's because it's easier to get vaccines approved for non-human animals than it is in humans. Uh, but it would be nice to have a West Nile vaccine. I would get it. Yeah, I've got a four and five chance of nothing happening, but like I don't want to be that less than one percent that gets in the hospital. There's 200 people a year that die that I'm sure would have loved to have had a West Nile vaccine. Well, the horses don't have a choice, too, right? That's true, too. And and our our animals, they don't have that that choice to to not take it. But I sent also a link to a paper, West Nile Virus and Horses, What Do You Need to Know to Diagnose the Disease? And there are a lot of, if you look up West Nile Virus and Horses, they're different by state, you know, which mosquitoes are present and what they recommend. And so in this particular paper, it was talking about um, that similar to humans, that horses can also be asymptomatic. So 20% infected will develop clinical signs. And then their signs are, if it they are symptomatic, is ataxia. So stumbling, staggering, wobbly, incoordination, so limb paralysis, things like that. And then it said neurological disease may up to be may be up to 30%. Um, case fatality and another 10 to 20 recover with residual neurological disease deficits. So, you know, if you own horses, it's it's an expensive hobby and these are you know, <laughs> beloved horses. So you do want to protect them. So they always recommend vaccinating in the spring, but exactly what you said with the birds and humans, it's usually like late in the summer. So like the highest diagnosis, like August and September, where you're going to see the diagnoses of West Nile virus, even though like you need to prevent it early on. 
So as the representative of the horse capital of the world, I kind of wanted to hop in. Um, I found from the Kentucky Department of Ag a pretty, what seems to be a pretty thorough listing of cases throughout history, going back to 2001 uh, in this state, where in 01, there were eight confirmed with a 75% mortality rate. And then in 2002, there were 513 confirmed equine West Nile cases, and they had not been vaccinated. There was a 27% mortality rate. And then it goes down to 102. And then we're in the eights, nines, and teens for many, many years. And this year, in 2013, we just had, in the last couple of weeks, it sounds like, three confirmed cases across two counties in western Kentucky. Uh, so I'm going to guess that this is a result of a vaccination program amongst horse owners and probably has helped to cut those numbers from almost a thousand to, uh, it looks like we're going to top out in the one to three range here in Kentucky this year. That's a really good advertisement to like getting vaccines, both West Nile for horses, but also vaccines in general. Yeah. That's great that it works. Seems like it, yeah, based on these numbers, and maybe, I mean, obviously, we always throw that caveat, right? Like it, it's uh, reporting, so who knows who's reporting what? But uh, I just I found the Kentucky Horse Council. They had a whole website on, like, it seems like this is something that they put out with a gusto every year, uh, just about when it first first shows up, and then talking about like the horse was euthanized in this case. Uh, so talking about the the consequences of not taking this seriously and preventing the the infection with a with a vaccine. Well, in even presuming, yes, you've got a reporting bias, and it's probably gonna it's gonna be biased towards severe cases because those are the ones that are noticed. Um, even if it's one in five, like you're still below fifty cases a year in Kentucky if you're getting one to three reported even like counting hypothetical asymptomatic cases, like that's still not that many. So that's great. That's great that it works. You heard it here, folks. Vaccines are good. Arthropod 2023. We support them. (laughs) So we talked a little bit about human disease already, but just to go over it, to bring us back up to speed, 80% of patients are asymptomatic or posi-symptomatic and have few symptoms. 20% 20% of patients develop fever, headache, vomiting, rash. They, they develop West Nile fever. It's the febrile disease. disease, And then less than 1% of patients have this central nervous system disease where they develop encephalitis or meningitis, acute flaccid paralysis, and it, it is really bad. So there's some important risk factors in predicting severe disease. Uh, one of those is age. So the WHO estimates that overall, one in 150 people will develop severe disease. If you look at people that are over 65, that jumps to one in 50. So your risk triples as you get over 65. Uh, and from the Gervais paper, that was kind of the kernel that this, this episode was built around. They have this quote, risk of severe disease, particularly neuroinvasive disease, is about 16 times higher in those over 65 years than those uh, in younger individuals. And the risk of death is about 30 to 45 times higher in those over 70 years of age than in younger individuals. So your risk of getting severe disease goes through the roof as you get 
you know, 65, 70 and older. Other risk factors include being male. So men have a higher risk than women or males have a higher risk than females. Uh, and other things like immunosuppression can also lead to a modest risk, a modest increase in risk in neuroinvasive disease and death. There is another risk factor that's genetic, and this is the CCR5 delta 32 deletion. So this is kind of a neat genetic thing that is an interesting sidebar to what we're talking about. So CCR5 is the CC chemokine receptor type 5, and delta 32 is the delta 32 deletion uh, is a deletion of a 32 base pair in the CCR5 gene located on chromosome 3 that results in a non-functional protein. So the CCR5 protein is a protein that's located on the outside of various cells, but particularly in macrophages, dendritic cells, and memory T cells in the immune system. So it's this protein that is in a lot of things, but particularly associated with immune system cells. Did John Fogarty discovered it? A different Creedence Clearwater member. <laughs> it took me a second to get it. I was like, John Fogarty. I was thinking about him during his solo career. <laughs> no, I don't think so. So the CCR5 Delta 32 deletion is interesting because it's associated with other diseases. And this is interesting enough. I wanted to kind of sidebar and tell you about them. So the homozygous condition, because you can be homozygous where you've got two sets of deletions and you just don't make this protein or heterozygous, you've got one deletion. So you make the protein, but at lower amounts than in people that don't have any deletions. Uh, so people that have the homozygous condition, they have both sets of this deleted in both sides of the chromosome. They're, com they're completely immune to HIV, uh, HIV one particular, uh, and people that are heterozygous for the deletion, uh, have, a reduced risk of catching HIV if they're in a situation where they're exposed, and it delays the progression of AIDS if they do get HIV. This is cool, I think. And it's because the CCR5 protein is the key that HIV uses to enter cells. So if you don't have the key on the outside of your cells, HIV can't get in, can't replicate, and you don't get it if you don't have the protein. The CCR5 32 deletion is also associated with a decreased risk of graft versus host disease. So this is a disease that happens in people that get stem cell and bone marrow transplants. And it happens when those stem cells in bone marrow start to produce white blood cells that then attack the transplant, transplant patient's own body cells. So you get this transplant, they make white blood cells and then attack you. And people that have this CCR5 deletion have a decreased risk of that because again, this deletion is associated primarily with immune system cells. This deletion is found exclusively in people of European descent. And so about 1% of Europeans are homozygous for it. They have 
both copies deleted and don't have it at all. And anywhere from 10 to 18% of people are heterozygous, so they have one copy deleted. And even cooler is that there's clinal variation. So people in Northern Europe are more likely to have be either homozygous or heterozygous compared to people in Southern Europe. And based on some DNA work, it's estimated that this deletion arose somewhere between 700 and 3,000 years ago. And so there have been explicit suggestions that maybe this deletion originated in the Vikings and was spread throughout Europe as they kind of like did their Viking thing up and down the coast. And like, that's cool. It certainly um, is. Certainly a, an interesting segue. <laughs> right? Interesting link, and yeah. you know who the Vikings traded with? The Roman Empire. It's true. I wondered <laughs> what you were doing with that. <laughs> no, I just, I thought that was really cool that you've got this very specific thing. And it's like, yeah, maybe Vikings did it. The problem is, like, it's not all great if you have this protein deleted. Like, yes, you're immune to HIV, but there's trade-offs. People that have this CCR5 Delta 32 deletion are at an increased risk of symptomatic West Nile virus infection. So like, yeah, it keeps you immune from HIV, but it increases your risk to other viral pathogens because it's affecting your immune cells. And so there's this interaction between age, the older you are, the higher risk you are to West Nile, and immune system factors like this CCR5 Delta 32 deletion put you at increased risk of West Nile virus, bad West Nile virus disease. And so like you've got this interaction, age, immune system, something's going on. So that's the setup that Gervais et al. 2023, this paper kind of sets up and then they lead into, uh, and I'm just going to quote it here, type one interferons confer cell intrinsic protection against West Nile virus replication in vitro and human cells. They also protect mice in vivo. These findings suggest that insufficient type 1 interferon immunity might underlie life-threatening West Nile virus disease, at least in some patients. So what are type 1 interferons, the thing that this paper is focusing on? Type 1 interferons are cytokines. They're these small proteins that are active at the as uh, intracellular microbial programs and influence the development and innate and adaptive immune responses. So they're these little proteins. They are secreted when a cell gets infected, particularly by viruses. So a cell gets infected, says, oh shoot, I've got a virus. And then just spits out these type one interferons. They go out and do things. One of the things that they do is tell cells in the nearby area that there's a viral infection happening, get ready. They're the first response of the immune system. Uh, and they're part of the innate immune system. They're not adaptive. So we think about things like antibodies, you know, a vaccine charges your immune system, trains your antibodies to recognize a virus so that when that virus shows up, your immune system can respond quickly and eliminate it. These type 1 interferons are not that. They're not adaptive. They are released anytime there's any kind of viral infection. It's like, oh, shoot, there's a virus. We don't know what it is. Get out there. And so they have three major functions. Um, they induce uh, cell intrinsic antimicrobial states in infected and neighboring cells, and that helps limit the spread of these infectious agents in, in particular viruses, which is why we're talking about them with West Nile virus. Uh, they modulate the innate immune response in a balanced manner. Um, and so if you have them going out, they help keep your immune system 
in check. They don't let your immune system go haywire and produce a response that ends up killing the host because it's overboard. Uh, and then they activate the adaptive immune system. So they uh, promote development of antigen-specific T and B cells. They activate your, your antibodies. Uh, and the human genome contains a cluster of 13 functional type 1 interferon genes. They're all in the same place in the genome, uh, related to each other. They looks like they've been duplicated and then kind of changed a little bit. So then to continue this paragraph from Gervais et al., quote, moreover, the higher risk of West Nile virus disease in men over the age of 65 is reminiscent of the situation for critical coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19 pneumonia, for which 15% of cases are due to pre-existing circulating autoantibodies neutralizing type 1 interferons. Okay, so there's more there that we have to break down, and I promise I'm going to bring this all back together to West Nile. So what is an autoantibody? We know what antibodies are. They're things that your body makes to go find a specific virus, locks onto it, and kills it. Autoantibodies are antibodies that react to things your body makes. It's a mistake. It, they react to self-antigens, antigens that you're, an antigen is just anything that they're reacting to. So antigens to autoantibodies might include things like proteins, nucleic acids, carbohydrates, lipids, any combination of those. And autoantibodies are the cause of various diseases. So systemic lupus is an autoantibody that your body makes to ribonucleoproteins. So these autoantibodies are bad. Your body is producing antibodies that produces an immune response to something that your body should be producing naturally. And the problem is autoantibody production increases with age. There's a couple of reasons for this. The immune system in general just kind of declines with age and begins to senesce as you get older. It's just not as, as responsive as it once was. And also, the older you are, the more time your immune system has had to react to these different antigens and produce antibodies to them. You think like a baby that is just born, its immune system hasn't had more than a little bit of time to react to things in the body. If you're 80 years old, you've had 80 years being exposed to the stuff in your body to start producing autoantibodies against them. It's known that there are autoantibodies against these type 1 interferons, these proteins that cells make when viruses infect them. In prevalence, varies by age. People under 65, it varies from 0.3 to 1%. So let's say one in 100 people have autoantibodies auto against type 1 interferons. If you're over 70, that jumps up to 4 to 7%. And so you see this autoantibody production against type 1 interferons jump up with age. And again, severe West Nile virus disease is correlated with age. Age is a factor, so maybe there's something here. And the production of these autoantibodies against type 1 interferons has been shown to relate to poor disease outcomes in other diseases. So again, 15% of COVID-19 pneumonia cases are associated with type 1 or type 1 interferon autoantibodies. 5% of critical influenza cases have type 1 interferon autoantibodies. 25% of people that got Middle East Respiratory Virus Syndrome pneumonia, so MERS, it's another coronavirus. It typically is in camels, but can jump to people. 25% of those people have autoantibodies against type 1 interferons. 
These are all other viruses. Uh, but interestingly, there was a small study of eight patients that had adverse reactions to live attenuated yellow fever virus vaccine. So they take a, vi a yellow fever virus, kind of damage it a little bit so it doesn't cause disease and put it into your body so your body can make antibodies against it. Of these eight patients, three of them had this type one interfere on autoantibodies. So we see in other viruses, if you have these type one interfere on autoantibodies, that can lead to poor disease outcome at a higher rate than you would expect, given that only up to 7% of people have these autoantibodies if they're over 70. So Gervais said all this 2023 paper asked the question and they, they ask it right in the title. Do autoantibodies that target type one interferons increase the risk of West Nile virus disease? And so how did they look at this? They had 441 subjects uh, that were hospitalized for West Nile virus disease in uh, Italy, Hungary, and the US. So this is a large multinational study. 348 of those patients had confirmed neurological diseases, including encephalitis in 222 cases, meningitis in 87 cases, and acute flaccid paralysis in eight cases. They had 93 patients that didn't have clinical evidence of neuroinvasive disease, but did have West Nile. So they were hospitalized for West Nile fever. So that milder case that one in five people get, it got bad enough that they were hospitalized. 108 patients that were treated for West Nile fever, but were managed as outpatients. And then 114 individuals that had recent asymptomatic West Nile virus infections. Any guess how they found these people that were asymptomatic? If you don't know you have the viral infection, how did they find these 114 people to enroll them in the study? Blood donors. Blood donors. Exactly. They found them like they found Jody. So Jody, if you had been around in 2019 or 2020, whenever they were doing this, they may have reached out to you because you're like, hey, you had West Nile. Would you like to be in our study? Unfortunately, she was born in 2020, so too young to be in this study. Whatever. <laughs> um, I, that was what he implied. He said, if you were around in 2019. Sorry, if you had been infected and not infected back in whatever, 2016 or whatever, when you're 2018, 2018. So maybe one year too early. Yeah. So, but that exactly how your case got found. That's how they found these basically con the control, right? These people are asymptomatic. So they did ELISA tests for these type one interferon autoantibodies. And uh, I'll just quote from the paper because it sums it up better than I could. Type 1 interferon autoantibodies were detected in 31% of the encephalitis cases, 46% of meningitis cases, and 52% of cases of unspecified neurological symptom and in one patient with acute flaccid paralysis. So, you know, this autoantibody is present in 1% of patients if you're under 70, up to 7% of patients if you're over 70, and yet... 31, 46, 52% of these cases that have these severe neurological symptoms have this autoantibody to type 1 interference. Like it is a much higher percentage of people that are getting severe diseases that have these autoantibodies to type 1 interference. And then from the conclusions, overall, our data indicate that 35% of all hospitalized West Nile virus disease cases including about 40% of patients with neuroinvasive disease, a prevalence 
much higher than that reported for the general population of about 1%, and in patients with life-threatening COVID-19, about 15%, influenza pneumonia, about 5%, and MERS pneumonia, about 25%, uh, have this type 1 interferon autoantibody. So it seems like here's the reason, or at least the reason for a large percentage of people, like why do some people get really sick with West Nile disease? They've got this type one interferon autoantibody. Like it's, it's just that simple. Your body starts making antibodies against these interferons that you produce to viral infections. Then that leads to a poor disease outcome with West Nile. Um, they've got some really, really nice figures that kind of demonstrate this more, uh, particularly figure five has, uh, it's kind of a little dot map that has West Nile virus asymptomatic cases, West Nile virus fever, and West Nile virus disease cases. And they have like the dots of whether or not the ELISA detected type one interferons. And you can see like, there's hardly any dots above the detection line for everything except West Nile virus disease, which 40% of them are over the line. 40% of the patients have this. It is just really dramatic. The other thing about it is that in their patients that they looked at, West Nile virus disease patients skewed older, 67 years of age versus 50 years of age, West Nile disease versus asymptomatic, and male. Almost 60% of the people that had West Nile disease were male versus 41 uh, or 40% of people that were female. So again, here is this kind of skew of male versus female. Why is being male a risk factor for West Nile virus disease? Because it's associated with this production of autoantibodies against type 1 interferons. So what does that mean? We figured out like the genetic underpinnings of, of why a lot of people get severe West Nile virus disease. Like, what do we do with that? So they have a really nice section kind of in the discussion and conclusions, quote, Given the presence of autoantibodies against type 1 interferons in the general population and the associated risk of life-threatening West Nile virus disease, it is probably advisable to test for these antibodies in the general population living in areas where West Nile virus is endemic, particularly in older individuals and those with autoimmune conditions associated with the development of these autoantibodies. Uh, and then another quote, given the risk of severe viral diseases, other than West Nile virus disease, more generalized screening of populations at risk of producing autoantibodies against type 1 interferons could be extended to areas in which West Nile virus is not endemic. So we know that the production of these type 1 interferon antibodies puts you at risk from West Nile and other viral diseases. It's really easy to test for people. We should probably just kind of test people for these things. And if you know that you have these autoantibodies, take preventative steps for getting mosquito bites. Do mosquito control around your house. Make sure you're wearing insect repellents so you're not being bitten. Don't get the yellow fever vaccine because you could have a severe outcome. Maybe don't travel to the tropics where some of these other flaviviruses are really prevalent. It, let, it gives people the option to take more control methods or make different decisions if they know that they're at higher risk because their body's producing these autoantibodies. And I think that's really cool. And I think it's really cool that we figured out that this underlays like 40% of the cases of severe West Nile disease. Like it's always been a question, why do some people get it really bad and other people's don't? Well, this is one of the big answers. And that's to me really neat. So could you go 
and get tested somewhere, like that's that would be the thing, right? There's like, no general testing. I'm not even sure doctors are that aware right. of it. Presumably, if there was an interest, like people could, like we could suggest people over 60 should probably be tested for these autoantibodies. Like we could make it easy in inexpensive if we wanted to, in like if we could convince insurance companies that that makes financial sense for them. But like it is a thing that we could do if we wanted. Thoughts, reactions? Is that, did you guys think it was as neat as I thought? Are you done? Yeah, I'm done. Oh, well, okay. So I think we should wrap it up with saying like, why, well, what what's our role in it? What kind of environmental conditions? Like, I mean, now that we, you can predict what you're talking about medically, how can we predict when we will have years that are going to be like high risk for West Nile? What kind of environmental factors, like the One Health aspect of it, mm-hmm. right? Um, like I'm talking more like drought. Like, are we in a drought, climate change, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think, I mean, climate change is obviously going to change things. It, it'll change bird migrations. It'll change where the mosquitoes are found maybe change feed or impact feeding patterns. I think as far as the the big takeaway, the big takeaway for me from all of this was one, West Nile is still here. It never went away. We know why older people are at risk. And so we need to make sure, even if they're not getting tested for these autoantibodies, like up to 7% of older people have them. That needs to be our target audience when we are delivering information about West Nile disease. Like it's still out there. You can still get it. You can still die from this. You folks in particular, you're over 65. You really need to be careful with mosquito bite prevention, mosquito control around your house to prevent getting West Nile and other like St. Louis encephalitis. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's only 32 cases a year, but man, I wouldn't want to be one of those 32. Yeah. And I think, sometimes well i would say like the public believe like if it rains or there's a storm or you know like really heavy rainfall they'll think mosquitoes but they don't think about that during drought years and we've had a lot of drought here in nebraska and i think and from who i've been talking to with i don't know epidemiologists and whatnot in nebraska and some research too, is that in drought years, there's actually, it amplifies the effects of West Nile virus. So it's almost the opposite of what people may think like, oh, it's dry here. We don't have to worry about mosquitoes. So like what you're saying, we do have to worry about it. And just because it's not super wet doesn't mean that you shouldn't worry about mosquitoes because what happens is in the drought years, there's a decrease in like bird population and there's not the rains to wash away the larvae and the pupa from like, you know, storms or whatever, storm drains. And so all those man-made objects and backyard mosquitoes and the stagnant water and our toys and planters and whatnot, there's like a higher concentration of mosquitoes. And then with birds, they're going to come to urban areas to have like water if there's a drought. And so all that virus is just very concentrated. And so the years that there's a drought and then it's really hot, 
it's a good West Nile virus year. Yeah, and there is still, it is a reportable disease to the CDC. So you could see if it's a bad year or not. Um, a lot of states have stopped testing dead birds, like they're focusing on testing other things for West Nile. But like people can pay attention, like, is it a bad year in my area? The other thing that I didn't really cover is that West Nile is now known from across the United States. It's found everywhere, but it is more prevalent in kind of the West Central part. So like Nebraska into Mm -hmm. the Rockies, there are far more cases in kind of that region than elsewhere in the country. Like, yes, we have it here, but it's only one or two cases like in my area a year compared to over there where you could get dozens. And so knowing folks that live over in that area, like West Nile is bad in the Rocky Mountains. Maybe I should be more aware of mosquito bites or mosquito prevention. Like we need to, you need to know if it's bad in your area or not. Like that can, that can help make more informed decisions. Right. And that information, like the surveillance data is on the websites of your local, you know, organizations doing those. So sometimes they'll have mosquito surveillance traps. So they'll have, you know, uh, the, where the mosquitoes are laying eggs and then it will document like which species they're seeing. And then they pull them together and they test them so they can say if they've been confirmed for West Nile virus. But even if it says like there's a low risk, it doesn't mean there's no risk. So that's Mm -hmm. also what we need to, you know, inform the people about. But I guess in your area, you would say like Lyme disease is something that's big for us in, you know, the plains in Nebraska, it's West Nile virus. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that, like people are so concerned about say Lyme here that that just kind of swamps out like everything else, like they're not information overload, but they've got the information and then like, they don't pay attention to other stuff. If we can convince them like, Hey, maybe we're a deet for the ticks. Like that works on mosquitoes too. Like that's great. But I wonder how much of that is driving people paying less attention to like West Nile, which maybe isn't quite as prevalent as Lyme here, but is still certainly present. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is uh, like a, I don't know if this is moral, philosophical. Should we just let our kids get bitten by mosquitoes so that they can get West Nile virus and be asymptomatic while they're young and not have, you know, the potential to be very sick or neuroinvasive, and then they're they're immune to it. I mean, that could work. There is a small subset of kids that already have autoantibodies type 1 interference, so they're going to be at higher risk. So it's not, you know, that might work. It might it might give you immunity for when you are older, but it, again, it's not without risk. Honestly, I would like to see a West Nile vaccine developed so we just don't have to worry about it. But if there's no concern in the general public and they can't, like a company can't then go and sell it, then there's probably not going to be the money to develop it, even if there is like a horse vaccine. So it was a long and winding road to learn about West Nile virus. I appreciate Mike doing a deep dive. Uh, learning all that for us and then ex- uh, explaining it to Jody and I, and therefore also the listeners, uh, we got to play the the inquisitive entomologists on this episode, a role I, I relish. If people want to learn more about West Nile viruses, they can, or West Nile virus, they can look in our show notes. Mike will make a rather exhaustive list of his sources that uh, he compiled for <laughs> his outline today. 
and people can click through those links and learn a little bit more themselves. We'll have some of those surveillance things that Jody mentioned as well. Uh, you can also, you can find all of that on our blog spot. So we are arthro-pod.blogspot.com. You can find the show on Twitter. We're arthro underscore pod show. And we all are also on Twitter. I'm at Bugman John. I'm at Jody Bugs Me, UNL. I'm at mscavarla 36 on Twitter and at Napoleonic Ento on Blue Sky. I need to add that into the show notes, Napoleonic Ento. If you want to talk to us there, give us show ideas. We are excited because we have spooky season coming up. We've got all kinds of awesome arthropod content lined up for you then. I don't want to spoil it now. So we're going to be probably watching a movie, think about creepy insect movies, and maybe be surprised by that. And we're hoping to bring back a former guest to talk about some other sort of entomological grossness um, and perhaps blow your mind a little bit with some TV episodes. So look forward to that. We appreciate you tuning in today. If you want to help the show, leave a rating and review on your favorite podcatcher app, and we will catch you here in a couple of weeks on Arthropod. It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel, as the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging. Oh, wait, did we talk about horses? We didn't talk about horses. Oh, is that actually, I, I left them out of my outline. Oh. So if we want to kind of jazz on horses when we're done here. Please jazz rethink on your phrasing. Please <laughs> rethink it. We you can know, talk go, about Going horses. off script and playing off each other. <laughs> Carry jazz. on. Riffing. Is that better? <laughs> yes. You're just one, sil- or one vowel away from a problem. <laughs>